The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is meant for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with all of you this morning. Uh, this past uh, week and a half or so, uh, my family and I got a chance to go back up to Northwest Washington where we both, were, both grew up for most of our lives. And my younger brother got married last weekend. So it was a great time just celebrating him and his new wife and getting to hang out with mom and dad a little bit and extend family, cousins and all that flew into town. So it was a ton of fun just this past a week and a half getting to be back uh, up in the Pacific Northwest and used to hang out with family and friends and whatnot. And vacation's a funny thing as far as, you know, as the older I get and the, as the more kids we have, it becomes less and less, like, restful as, as a, in one, in one, it's still really fun, so don't get me wrong. But there is a level of, like, it's a bit of work, you know, getting six of us across the country back to Washington. And, you know, part of that is when we flew, we decided to fly this, this round just to kind of make the trip a little bit more succinct, you know, flying out of Omaha, you know, there's not a ton of great options as far as like flights anywhere. <laughs> there's always a layover apparently. And so we had a five hour layover in Denver with four kids. I know. And it's like, and part of that too is our own doing because we had like some Southwest points and like you feel obligated to use the points and save money. And so you get, you know, you get what you get. But anyway, five hour layover in Denver, which isn't, isn't the worst thing in the world, I get it, but with four kids, it has its complexities and whatnot, and so we're the kind of family that once we, at least for me, once we land, I just want to make sure we get to our next gate, so I just know for sure, like, we're there, and, you know, nothing's going to go haywire between there, then, and, then and when the plane takes off. And so it's a massive airport, as many of you probably know, and so I'm trying to walk through, and we come to those, like, the, the flat kind of escalator type things. And like my three-year-old, Adia, is just like, this is amazing, you know? Like, I don't have to walk anymore. Like, I can just get on. It's like a free ride. And so she was great with, with most of those. But then we come to like a normal escalator that's like going down the stairs. And so she's never seen one of these, at least in her memory before. But she's read the book Corduroy, or we've read the book to her, right? And so like she has this, you know, idea of like escalator. Oh, this is awesome. It's like corduroy. She's getting really excited. We're going to go down an escalator for her, you know, first time. And so actually I had the stroller. So I had to like go down the elevator with Juniper with the stroller. So my wife has Adia and, you know, her bag or whatnot. And so we're, they're getting ready to go down the escalator. Cheyenne goes down 
makes it down a little bit and realizes Adia got scared at the top. And so Shine's like halfway down. There's a bunch of people between her and Adia, and she has to like go backwards, like <laughs> against the grain of like the moving escalator. Because Adia seemed to be super confident in the moment, but once she like apparently took that step, you know, the ground's moving and going down. So that's just a whole other level of, you know, complexity or whatnot. And so all that to say, you know, travel is travel. It's, it's good. It's fun. But I think at this point, we're, we're the kind of, we're a road trip family, is what we've, we've come to recognize at this point. We, our kids aced it on our road trip out here to Omaha. Flying back was a, eh, different. Anyway, but as we were sitting there, finally get to our spot, you know, where our gate is, we're sitting there, I'm listening to an audiobook, and one of the books I was listening to on our trip was the book Essentialism by Greg McCown. He's kind of a business guru kind of writer. He writes in like the efficiency, productivity kind of space. I didn't usually listen to these kinds of things, but I was wanting to re-listen to this a little bit. And one of the things that he mentions fairly early on in the book is he has this little section on the word priority. And he talks about how the word priority came into the English language around 1400 or so. And for the next few hundred years, it stayed as a singular word, priority, just singular. And it wasn't until, he says, around the 18, 1900s that we started using the word priorities in the plural. And his kind of point in, in demonstrating that is that it's sort of a kind of a recent phenomenon for human beings to talk in the language of having all of these different priorities as if we're able to kind of just like hold all these things together equally. I don't know about you, but for myself, there's a tendency where we think, I think in my head, like, I can prioritize 10 different things, I'll be fine, Right? Like, it'll be, it'll be good, it'll be easy, but in reality, we really can only focus, at least for me at least, only focus on one thing at a time, right? And having a single priority is more or less how most human beings have operated through most of human history. Now, what in the world does that have to do with the book of Philippians? Well, this is week three in our journey through the, the, the letter to the Philippians that Paul has written, and when we come to this little section, verses 12 through 18, the main thing we're going to see is Paul's singular priority. Paul's priority is that no matter what happens, his focus is on God and his gospel. The advancement of the gospel is Paul's singular priority. And what I want us to see this morning is that when the gospel is the singular priority in our lives, when we've experienced and encountered the grace of God in the gospel in our lives, and that becomes the singular focus of our lives, that does something to us, that changes us, and that gives us this sort of settled confidence, this boldness, and might even say a sort of a, a, in the best sense of this term, a sort of a swagger, if you will, that really that no matter what happens in the world, no matter what happens in culture or in even my own personal life, that it's going to be okay, that, that the kingdom of God is still going to advance, that the gospel cannot be stopped. And this only happens, this only is a result of, for Paul and by extension for us, the gospel being the priority. So question to kind of orient our time this morning, to kind of hang sort of all our thoughts together is simply this. What is your priority? What is your priority? Or to maybe rephrase that in a statement, gospel priority. So that's what we're looking at this morning. Let's dive in, starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, 
that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, I'll pause there. Paul's saying to the, the church in Philippi, I want you to know that what's, how it's happened to me. So what's happened to Paul? Well, at this point, we, we recognize Paul's in prison. Paul's most likely in Rome, and he's, he's under more or less kind of like this house arrest scenario. He's in prison. Now, a bunch of terrible things probably have happened to Paul at this point in his life. You kind of read the book of Acts. You piece together some of the autobiographical sections and other letters that he's written. Paul has not had a very easy life as a missionary, as a pastor, as a church planter. He's been beaten. He's been persecuted. He's been mocked. He's been hurt. He's had a ton of difficult circumstances. And Paul's reminding the Philippian church, he's saying, I want you to know what has happened to me is not an accident. It's not as if God has fallen asleep. It's not as if the gospel is is on pause. But it's really served this purpose, he says, to advance the gospel. Kind of by way of a side note here, if you're kind of interested in, you know, what are some of the things that Paul maybe have, have, has faced up until this point? There's a little paragraph, we're not going to turn there now, but in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul describes various things that has gone on in his own life, how he's been beaten and persecuted, so on and so forth. You know, if Paul were to have written a book today, it would probably be titled something like, Your Worst Life Now. <laughs> it's kind of like Paul's sort of M.O. And Paul says... I want you to know that that these things that have happened to me have served this purpose, and he says, to advance the gospel. That word advance is actually really interesting. It's a word that was used often for the Roman army in particular of a group or a subset within the Roman army that would go out ahead of the rest of the group. And if there was like wilderness or trees or shrubs or whatnot that needed to be kind of chopped away or, you know, removed to create space, that was advancing, that was what was used there, so the, the rest of the soldiers could go. And Paul's saying that the things that have happened to me have sort of cleared a way, cleared a pathway to advance the gospel. And he's going to go on and tell us there's two sort of ways the gospel has advanced because of his imprisonment. He says so in verse 13, so that, so notice, what's happened to me has advanced the gospel so that... As a result, what has happened, it has become known, he says, throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Literally, Paul is saying my chains are manifest in Christ. Now, Paul uses that phrase where he describes he's imprisoned by the imperial guard. Some of your translations might say the praetorium guard. This is a a technical word used to describe some of the most elite Roman soldiers of the day. This is one of the clues that people look to to point that Paul's most likely in Rome because these were kind of Caesar's personal elite soldiers. And Paul's saying it's become known throughout the entire imperial guard, all of Caesar's elite soldiers and all the household, that this imprisonment that's happening to me right now is actually because of Christ. There's been opportunities to share the gospel. Again, these elite soldiers, kind of the scenario that most commentators describe is that Paul is not, don't think of like when Paul's in prison, don't think of like the Joseph story where he's like in a pit. Think more of like he's more likely kind of in some sort of house arrest scenario. And probably 24-7, he has one of these elite soldiers chained to him. He's under direct supervision, can't go anywhere, all day, every day. Rotating shifts probably for the soldiers, so he's getting lots of opportunities to share the gospel with different people. And Paul again says, the whole imperial guard, all these different guys that are rotating through, 
Maybe they don't believe, but at least they've heard me talk about the gospel. It's a captive audience, right? Imagine some of the scenarios of some of the conversations Paul might have had with any of these Roman soldiers. I mean, if I'm the soldier, I'm going, like, why are you here? Like, why are you in prison, Paul? Murder, theft, tax evasion, any of those, anything? No, none of that. You know, I believe that Jesus of Nazareth is actually Lord of the world. And I give my allegiance to him. That whole propaganda thing that you guys talk about, Caesar is Lord, I don't buy any of it. You know, Caesar, God bless him. I, I pray for him. I tell all of the followers of Jesus to pray for Caesar. I, I, we even pay our taxes to Caesar, even though I don't make any money. But we, we honor Caesar. But we don't buy any of the, he is Lord. In fact, I'm actually writing a letter to my friends in Philippi right now. And there's, I think it's going to be a great letter. They're going to read it for a few months. And there's a spot in the letter where I'm going to actually tell them that one day every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I get why you're in prison now, right? <laughs> you do things like that, that gets you in prison in Paul's day. And imagine just even the different conversations the different guards are having with others. Have you heard about this Paul guy? He believes that that homeless rabbi that we crucified decades ago is actually alive and is Lord of the world. Like all these different conversations that are happening because of Paul's imprisonment. And remember, or think about it like this. If Caesar's objective in putting Paul in prison, Rome's objective, was to shut down the spread of the gospel, was to stop the advancement of the gospel, and did that work? No. Paul's saying, even in spite of my changing circumstances, even in spite of my less than ideal circumstances, the gospel is advancing. And later on, he's going to say, in that I rejoice. So that's the first reason. That's the first sort of fruit, if you will, of my imprisonment has led to the proclamation of the gospel for all of the imperial guard. But second, go down into verse, verse 14. He says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So on one hand, you have the advancement of the gospel through the imperial guard, but second, you also have the advancement of the gospel in the sense that Paul's boldness in his own life has birthed more boldness in the lives of other Christians in, in, in Paul's sphere. They've seen the risk that Paul has taken, the courage that Paul has in the face of persecution and prison and likely death, and that has inspired other Christians in Paul's area, again, probably Rome, to proclaim the gospel. I mean, think about it. If you're living in Paul's day, probably 80, 60, 61, about 30-ish years or so after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the Roman emperor at the time is the least friendly person in the world to Christianity. And for Paul to not only be in prison for the gospel, but to say, because of my imprisonment, other Christians are now even more bold and have less fear to proclaim the gospel. The gospel cannot be stopped. And all of this stems from because Paul's singular priority, Paul's focus, Paul's aim is God and his gospel. That's what drives Paul. That's what gets Paul up in the morning. To the point where Paul can say other people are more emboldened and it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Imagine that for your life for a moment. Imagine if we could say, like Paul, it has become known throughout 
You fill in the blank. It has become known throughout my sphere of influence, the, the, the place I work at. It has become known throughout the gym I participate at or the classroom that I'm a part of, that my circumstances, whatever they might be, really are serving the purposes and the advancement of God. It has become known throughout all of my neighborhood that the situation that I'm going through actually is bringing glory and honor to God. It's advancing the kingdom of God. How does Paul say that? Why does Paul say that? Because for him, the gospel is the number one priority. That's his focus. See, too often I think, and I do this myself, we think that it's only when we're in a, in a great sort of season or when we're experiencing a ton of blessings, however we might define that, that it's then and only then that we now have a platform to proclaim the gospel. In fact, the testimony of Scripture is almost the exact opposite. It's often through difficulty, through suffering, through setback, through unpredictable circumstances that the gospel is advanced, that Jesus is put on display. And this was Paul's priority, that the gospel would continue to advance. And here's why, here, here's where this, here's why this really matters for you. Here's why that this is possible for Paul, and not just Paul, this is possible for you, to have this singular priority, to have this sort of vision for your life. See, the gospel tells us, friends, that we bring nothing to the table when it comes to our relationship with God. We come empty-handed. The good news is that our relationship with God and all its benefits is entirely dependent on what God brings to the table. It's all on him. And that's why Paul, therefore, understood, and therefore why we should understand, that we have no entitlement in this. There's nothing that we, we own. There's nothing that, that we can say that I deserve X, Y, or Z. And that's why I think about what Bob was preaching last week. Grace leads to what? Gratitude. Right? Someone who's really experienced the, the gospel. Someone who's come to know the saving power of Jesus. And experienced God's grace in that. That transforms them into someone who's grateful. And that begins to instill in them what Paul is saying here, this priority, this singular focus, this vision of this is what matters. So when Paul loses his freedom, it doesn't ruin him. When Paul's in prison, it doesn't shatter him because his joy is not dependent on his circumstances. See, we often prioritize our circumstances over Christ. And if our foundation, if if our foundation, our well-being, is based on our circumstances, whether that's a relationship, money, career, whatever it might be, then a change in those circumstances, when something shifts there, if our priority is in those circumstances, then the change in those circumstances begins to have us pull away from our source of joy, which is those circumstances. And then we become bitter, more anxious, probably mad, angry, so on and so forth. But if your identity and your being is anchored in the priority of Christ, so that you're able to say, everything I need, I already have in him, then even a change in circumstances can drive you deeper into your ultimate source of joy, Jesus. See, a change in circumstances, in other words, often reveals to us where we have placed our priority. 
either in Christ or in our circumstances. Our response to changing circumstances, suffering, disappointment, loss, often, not always, often reveals that we're building our life on something other than the priority of Christ. And I think this is where this, this can really hits home for me, especially, that this means that our circumstances do not rob us of joy, wrong affections and allegiances do. Wrong priorities do. The gospel, friends, though, frees us from this. Frees us from having to be the kinds of people that have our priority or priorities in all these other things that, just like we confessed this morning, do not satisfy. The gospel gives us something that is more sure, more steadfast, that gives us this humble confidence that no matter what our circumstances might be, we can, like Paul's going to say in a few verses, rejoice. Listen to how Paul Tripp says this. I want to read this to you. It's a short quote. He asked this, how is your present disappointment, discouragement, or grief, your circumstances, a window on what God, or on a window what has actually captured your heart? Let me read that again. How is your present disappointment, discouragement, or grief, your circumstances, a window on what has actually captured your heart? I think that's a Really important question. I know for myself and I know for so many in this room to really wrestle with. What's really below the surface there? But Paul goes on, verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Here Paul's describing, although that he's in prison, there's apparently this, this group of people. We don't really know much about them. It's hard to really say for sure, but apparently there's a group of people that are proclaiming the gospel, and it seems to be kind of based on the evidence here that they're preaching something that's doctrinally probably pretty sound. They're not necessarily preaching heresy. When There's other places in the New Testament where people are preaching heresy, and Paul has some very different words for those people. Paul's not celebrating the advancement of the gospel with people preaching heresy. But here, Paul seems to be saying, you know what? They're preaching something that's doctrinally pretty good, but they're doing it from a place, notice what, what, what Paul said, from envy, from rivalry, from selfish ambition. In other words... Their motive in preaching the gospel is not really the priority of Christ. It's themselves. But Paul seems to be so free, so assured and confident in the gospel that, you know what? Even if these other people, their platform, their ideas, their persona, whatever it might be, even though that might be advancing along with the gospel, and I'm stuck in prison and I can't actually be with other people, I'm still going to rejoice. Why? Because what matters most to Paul is not his own personal name, not his own personal platform or anything along those lines. What matters to Paul, the priority of Paul, again, is the gospel. And that has freed Paul to, in a sense, be okay with, you know what? Second place is okay. 
I don't always have to quote-unquote win, however the culture might define winning. See, if the gospel is our priority, if the gospel is what we have our lives based on, that frees us to lose. That frees us to not have to always win. And I mean in the sense of like how our culture might define winning. Because the gospel is always going to be advancing. The gospel is always going to be going forward. And you know what? It's okay if my reputation, my name, my whatever doesn't. Because it's not about Paul. It's about Christ. Gordon Fee, a New Testament scholar, says it well. He writes, the gospel is bigger than Paul's personal role in making it known. Even while Paul is imprisoned, Paul recognizes that even though these other people over here are doing their thing and causing disturbances or whatnot because of their motives, Paul's okay. So whether it's changing circumstances or difficult people, that doesn't rattle Paul. There's something there. See, the gospel frees us to realize that while we matter, sure, our circumstances matter, our, our own personal lives, they matter for sure. At the same time, we're not the point. We're not what's ultimate. And when we understand that your significance and identity is anchored in Christ, again, you're free to lose. You're free to kind of just, okay, put things in the right perspective. I want to read kind of a fairly lengthy quote here from that same New Testament scholar, Gordon Fee. He does a really good job, I think, of summarizing sort of what Paul is talking about in these handful of verses. He writes this. Paul can write things like this because, first, his theology is in good order. Just as a quick sidebar, this is why theology matters so much, right? Theology matters. How you think about God, how you believe about God, these things matter for your lives. His theology is in good order. He has learned, by the grace of God, to see everything from the divine perspective, God's perspective. This is not wishfulness, but deep conviction that God had worked out his own divine intentions through the death and resurrection of Christ, and that by his spirit, he is carrying them out through the church and therefore through both himself and others. It is not that Paul is too heavenly minded to be in touch with reality or that he sees things through rosy tinted glasses. This is not Paul giving platitudes here. This is someone who's truly experienced horrific suffering huge setbacks in life. Rather, if he goes on, he says, he sees everything in light of the bigger picture. And in that bigger picture, fully emblazoned on our screen at Calvary, there is nothing that does not fit, even if it means suffering and death on the way to resurrection. This is his priority. Do you see what's, what's happening there? That no matter what's happened to Paul, no matter his changing circumstances, Paul's circumstances do not define Paul's well-being. The priority of the gospel is what gives Paul his identity and his groundedness and his confidence. And so a question for you to maybe take it a, a layer deeper here would be this. What would it look like for you to be so enamored with the person and work of Christ that no matter what happens to you, you maintain a grounded confidence in Christ and his gospel. 
What would it look like? What would your, have a vision for your life. What would it look like to be so enamored and in love with the person and work of Christ that no matter what happens to you, you maintain a settled and humbled confidence in Christ and his gospel? It's a question I think worth pondering, worth dwelling, worth thinking about as we wrestle with this text. But to close, as we kind of wrestle through this, three truths I want to leave you from this text. Three truths. Put them up on the screen and I'll work through them quickly one by one. Number one, God uses you where you are, not where you wish you were. Number two, boldness births boldness. And number three, it's not about you and that should be freeing for you. So a quick word on each. God uses you where you are, not where you wish you were. Again, think about Paul. It's very easy to kind of put yourself in Paul's shoes and, you know, if, it, if it's me, and if it's probably you too, you're going, I don't want to be here, right? No one wants to be in prison. No one wants to be in chains. No one wants to go through any of those kinds of things. But for Paul, Paul doesn't have the mindset of, you know, when I have my circumstances change, when I move to a different location, when I have something different happen in my life, then God will use me. No. Paul says, Paul believes that God uses him where he's at, not in some theoretical, wishful situation that he wishes he might be at. And how easy is it for us, the temptation, to believe that, you know what, if only my fill-in-the-blank was different, then God might use me. If only... I was in a different life stage or a different circumstance or in a different city or whatever it might be to think that's when God's really going to be at work in my life. Friends, if you go into that temptation, if you believe that lie, you will miss out on the work that not only that God wants to do in your life, but in the lives of the people God has placed in and around you. God uses you where you are, not where you wish you were. Number two, boldness births boldness. You know, it's pretty obvious from this text, right? We've mentioned it already. Because of Paul's boldness, that has birthed boldness in the lives of other people, other Christians. Because of Paul's courage, that has given other people courage to proclaim the gospel. And really, this idea of boldness birthed boldness, this is a pretty universal idea, not just in this text. You know how I know this? Most of you went to high school, right? And in high school, you probably had a scenario where you had someone say, or you said to someone, I'll do it if you do it, right? Or you go first. You've all been there. It's okay to confess. Like we've all done dumb things, right? But what, what, what's happening there? Someone had, and this is like not how you should use the word boldness, but someone had quote unquote boldness to do something kind of dumb and then you followed along. And so there's this idea of like boldness is sort of contagious in a sense, and in this very similar way, but you know, a more sanctified way, boldness, Christian boldness, when you're around people that, have you been around people that just have, they're not perfect, but they have rock solid faith and they have courage and integrity. And there's something about the way they carry themselves, how they present themselves, how they talk with people, how they share the gospel, that's inspiring. That God uses that in your life to say, you know what? I want to be more like that. I want to take that step of it. I want to have that courage to articulate the gospel in that way and to be that kind of friend to that person or whatever the case might be. That boldness births boldness. 
So who maybe in your life might you need to not, not like fully depend on, but that, that you maybe look up to in the sense of like, you know what, I, I admire the way that you carry yourself. I admire the way that you share the gospel. And to surround yourself with those kinds of people. Or who might you be able to, to raise up to help someone grow in that? Notice how God is using Paul in his imprisonment. His boldness births boldness. But last but not least, number three, it's not about you, and that is freeing. Friends, this whole passage, this whole book, really, is a testament to Paul saying over and over again, no matter what happens to me, it's not about me. It's about the advancement of the gospel. Like, I I am free from the tyranny of having perfect circumstances. I am free from the tyranny of having to always have the right things said about me. I'm free from having everything work out exactly how I want it to. Why? Because the gospel is Paul's priority. It's not about him. And that has freed Paul to have this remarkable confidence and assured kind of subtleness that he's wanting to impart to the church that he's writing to. And it's all because he's come to this place of encountering Jesus through the gospel filled with gratitude where now the only thing that matters to him is the priority of God and his gospel. So let me end where I began with that simple question. What is your priority? What is your priority? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that regardless of where we find ourselves or what happens to us, that because of who you are and what you've done, that we have assurance and confidence in you. God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us. You would help us and meet us in our circumstances, in those moments that are difficult and unexpected and trying, and that you'd meet us with your presence, your assurance, your love. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us see Jesus more clearly. We thank you that your word reminds us that Holy Spirit, you point us back to Jesus again and again. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you would do that work this morning. Help us in the depths of our being to see the beauty of who you are, that our confidence and our priority would be in you. We love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.